You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more Sermon Audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Uh, good morning. You guys, uh, turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. That's where we'll be this morning, verses 21 through 29. We say this every week, and we do this for a very good reason. If you, um, if you don't own a Bible, uh, please take one of the Bibles that is located down the aisles or at the end, and if you would like a, uh, a nicer Bible and you can't afford it or, or you would like one, let us know. Well, let's, one of the pastors, we would love to gift you a nice Bible. It's, uh, there's something about handling the Word of God in your hand and turning pages and uh, actually interacting with it very tactilely that uh, there's something, something very supernatural and spiritual about that. So we, we commend that to you. Um, as you're getting to Mark chapter 15, which you probably are seeing, seeing some daylight um, as you uh, look at the last page or so, uh, we're getting very, very close to the end of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we will end Mark on Easter Sunday, um, as, as it would have it. Um, before we get into the reading of today's passage, <clears throat> I want to recap a little, just br- really briefly um, where we've been. Uh, in the series of events that have led up to where we're at today in this passage, um, as we know, Jesus has been delivered to Pilate. He's been unjustly accused by a bloodthirsty crowd who demands his crucifixion. We've learned that Jesus has been mocked. He's been laughed at. He's been spit on. He's been beaten. He has had a crown of thorns jammed down on top of his head. The beating that he took was with a cat of nine tails, which had razor-sharp fragments of bone or perhaps metal that ripped into the flesh of his back and probably exposed sinew and bone. And then he's let out to be crucified. He's utterly spent and exhausted and probably unable to even walk very well, let alone carry this crossbeam that he is supposed to carry to his eventual crucifixion. And this is where we pick up the scene this morning in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 21, where the writer says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, and they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. When the sixth hour had come, 
there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemes samachbani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, truly, this man was the Son of God. And this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I'm reminded this morning when Mary prayed and something that I read this week, when Jesus died, he died for the whole person. He didn't die for just a little piece of us, but he died for all of us. Father, it's hard for us as human beings that are very complex, made of body and spirit and soul. Father, it's, it's hard to, to fathom the truths that we are going to talk about today. And so we ask your spirit to come and be among us, to teach us, to draw us near. Father, we need you this morning. Anoint your word this morning to our hearts. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. When the Apostle Peter, the same Peter in Mark, of course, when he writes in 1 Peter that we are nearsighted and blind and that we have forgotten that we have been cleansed from our former sins, he writes that in 1 Peter 1.9. I believe he has this event in mind this morning that we're about to, to talk about this morning. He exhorts us, after saying that you've forgotten that you've been cleansed from your former sins, he says to confirm your calling, or believe the gospel. Believe who you are in Christ Jesus. But we do more than simply remember. It's not a wistful look back at at historical events, but Peter ties remembering to the truth of our identity in Christ, that we have been cleansed from our former sins, but to the fruitfulness of our faith in Jesus. And Peter says that trusting and following Jesus, which is faith, faith is trusting and following Jesus. It looks like something, Peter says in 1 Peter 1. Peter says our faith should be lived out in an intentional way and that we should apply with all diligence of, of our faith things like excellence and knowledge and self-control, and steadfastness, and godliness, and brotherly affection, and of course, love. Paul calls this the aroma of Christ. So as we look at this passage this morning, I want us to ponder the reality of God's mercy to us as displayed on the cross, and let us consider our response to that mercy. Every Sunday is an opportunity for us to respond. We've 
begun to craft our gathering in such a way that there's a specific ministry response time that includes the Lord's Supper every Sunday, an opportunity to pray, an opportunity to stand before the church and pray out loud over the church, and the added today, taking the connect card that Lane had described to you earlier and how that's going to be used today. All of it is a part of how we respond to Guy to God. And I want to ask you this morning as we begin, who among us likes conflict? Yeah, I didn't think many hands would go up. Yeah, it figures. Kim would go up. <laughs> Typically, we don't enjoy conflict, and we don't even like change much either. But the cross of Christ is the greatest conflict ever known. It's the conflict by which every other conflict should be measured and put into perspective. Whether it be big events like world wars, whether it be events like D-Day in World War II or 9-11, whether it be school shootings, natural disasters, the news of the day, the politics that surround us, or whatever is causing conflict in your life and in your heart and in your soul right now, today. All of that is to be viewed in the light of this great conflict of Jesus' death on the cross. As believers, we're given a command by Jesus to what? To love God and to love others. To love God and to love others. And it's not just any others. It's not just the easy others that we're called to love. We're actually called to love our enemies, which is not easy. It's not even easy to love people that are easy to love let alone the ones that are difficult to love. But we're called to do that by the radical nature of the cross. It's not something we're typically or naturally inclined to, to love our enemies, to confess to one another, to gently correct each other, to submit to one another. We love that word. To forgive others. Left to our own instinct, we're prone to do the exact opposite, and we spiral downward and we instinctively justify selfish behavior. And we just make things worse. We all do this. None of us are exempt, if we're honest. We're all guilty of this. We're all guilty of instinctively justifying selfish behavior. In his book, Peacemaker, Ken Sandy says this. He says, the gospel of Jesus Christ provides the way out of this downward spiral. When we remember that what Jesus did for us on the cross, our, our blinding self-absorption can be replaced with a liberating desire to draw attention to the goodness and the power of God. As Colossians 3 teaches us, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are of the earth. I don't know about you, but much of my life has been lived and at times is still lived in blinding self-absorption. It causes nothing but pain and hurt to those that are around me. And it's very exhausting. If you're like me, would you join me today? in seeking God and asking Him to liberate us from that. 
to draw our attention to the beauty and the wonder of the cross and what that means in our lives today. Because I think that's what God has for us this morning. God's heart is to lift our eyes from looking inward to looking outward and to looking upward, to set our minds on things that are above and not on things that are of the earth. And the cross is the gateway to do that. I want us to grasp the reality, as has been said a couple of times this morning, the reality of our, of our identity is a result of what happened on the cross. A great debt has been paid for you on that cross. If any of you have ever experienced debt, personal debt, and when that debt is paid off, it feels amazing, does it not? feels wonderful. It's like a, a weight has been lifted off of your shoulders and you can actually engage life in a new way. Some of you are currently in those situations where you have significant debt, or maybe it's just a little debt that's hanging over your head and it's driving everything you, every decision that you make in your life. Every time you think about it, it just gets your stomach in knots. Well, the debt that was paid on the cross frees us from this amazing debt, this conflict in our hearts before God. Jesus pays that greater debt. And when we understand and we live from our true identity because of the debt that has been paid, we are actually able to thrive in the midst of our daily struggle, in the midst of conflict, and we get to show what our faith actually looks like in the here and in the now. We display a picture of redemption. We get to actually smell like Jesus. Christ didn't die for you to simply hang on and avoid struggle and conflict until he returns. He didn't just die for you to be stuck in neutral. And you may be thinking, I'm not stuck in neutral. I feel like I'm sliding backwards. Well, he didn't die for you to regress either. None of us enjoys struggle. None of us enjoys conflict, as we've said. None of us enjoys pain or weakness or change at times. But Paul describes how those are actually opportunities to display the power of the gospel. Jesus tells Paul in the midst of his struggles, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your very weakness to the point that not only can we be content in weakness and in insult and in hardship and in persecutions and in calamity, don't, don't those all describe conflict? We can actually boast in them. That's how, radical, that's how radical the cross is. That's how radical what we're talking about today is. We can actually boast in the power of the cross, and that power is on display in this passage today. So to get into this passage this morning, I want to answer two questions. One is, why did Jesus have to die? And what does it mean for us today? Simple enough. Right? Simple questions, straightforward questions, easy answers, right? Shouldn't, shouldn't take long at all. Um, as you may imagine, there are volumes written on this subject. Lots of, lots of, lots of information in this passage is rich with meaning and significance and there's many, many different ways that we could go about exegeting this passage. But I want to start with why did he have to die? Mark recounts Jesus' death in very dramatic fashion. As we said, there's a lot going on here. Lots of rabbit trails. Lots of good stuff that we could, that we could, um, we could talk about this morning. But 
to answer the question, I really want us to get right to verses 37 and 38. In verse 37, we read that Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. This loud cry is most likely what John records in his gospel in chapter 19, verse 33, simple words, it is finished. It's accomplished. It's completed. And what comes after the loud cry in Mark's gospel in verse 38, Mark gives us this strange word picture. He says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What does this mean? What is, what is finished and why are we concerned about temple draperies? What's the point in all this? Well, the people of Israel were in constant conflict and rebellion before a holy God. We, we all know that story. We are all living that story. We have a lot in common with the people of Israel. This curtain was in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place, right? Or called the holy of holies. It was an inner sanctuary which combined, contained the Ark of the Covenant and lots of gold. It was very ornate. It was the holy of holies that the most holy act would occur. The holy of holies could only be entered by the high priest to offer gifts and sacrifices to God for the forgiveness of sins. And he could only enter it one time per year. One man, one time per year into the holiest of holies. One time to offer atonement for the sins of the people for one purpose, and that's to maintain communion with God. It's called the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. It may be familiar to some of you. What occurs on the Day of Atonement, and this is a yearly occurrence, it was an amazingly detailed process. It's the stuff that you read through in Leviticus, and you can get lost and confused or fall asleep, potentially. And it actually starts seven days prior to the Day of Atonement. There's all kinds of priestly rites that go into this. There's incense that's burned. There's sprinkling of blood, lighting of lamps. The night before the Day of Atonement, the priest has to stay up all night reading Scripture, praying through Scripture, having Scripture read to him. In the morning, he takes five baths. He washes his hands and his feet ten times. He's an extremely clean man. And he's dressed, of course, very elaborately. That's where we get the idea of this ephod that he puts on, which in and of itself is rich with symbolism and meaning. And, and it's, that could be an entire sermon in and of itself, just the meaning of all of this. On the Day of Atonement itself, there's a young bull that's slaughtered so that the high priest could confess his sin and his family's sin and the priesthood sins upon that bull so that it could be sacrificed before God. There were two goats chosen. One would be slaughtered and offered to God, and one, would, one goat where the sins of the people would be symbolically transferred by the high priest called the scapegoat. and would be led off into the wilderness to die or sometimes to be led off a cliff. And even that alone, tradition is rich with the symbolism of what it looks like for that goat to be led off from station to station to station and to be led off a cliff and how it's communicated back and back and back. Rich symbolism. Any of those could be a sermon in and of itself. All of this to forgive sin. 
all of this elaborateness to maintain communion with God. And when we say maintain communion with God, what it really means is the once a year sacrifice enabled them to continue the sacrifice over and over and over again. That's all it meant. It was significant. But it was never completely sufficient. It was never completely finished. And so we read in Hebrews this morning that every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. But the question remains, why? Why did Jesus have to die? Why all of this elaborate um, ceremony and rich meaning to this why? Because God is both a just God and he's a loving God. These are things we know about God. These are not unusual descriptions of our God, but they are pertinent to our discussion today. You cannot talk about the death of Jesus on a cross. I suppose you could, but I cannot talk about the death of of Christ on the cross this morning without quoting John Piper because he's written, literally written a book called 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. So you're going to work a little bit of Piper into your sermon. He says that if God were not just, there would be no demand for his son to suffer and die. And if God were not loving, there would be no willingness for his son to suffer and die. But God is both just and both loving. Therefore, his love is willing to meet the demands of his justice. Jesus summed up the law, love God and love others. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and love others. He didn't say love God with some of these things. He said love them with all all of these things. And all means all. The problem is we have issues with all, don't we? We have issues with the all part. We choose to love other things more than we love God. And it's the height of dishonoring a holy God. And we all do it. It's why Romans says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We glorify what we enjoy most. That's again Piper. Sounds very Piperian. And often it's not God that we glorify, but what is it that you are enjoying this morning more than God? What is it in this season of your life that you are actually enjoying and glorifying more than you're enjoying and glorifying our God? What are you eager and excited about to talk to people about? Because that's what you're enjoying and that's what you're glorifying most. Here's what happens with me. I'm either excited about something that has happened and I want to talk about it with everyone. For instance, I just had my van pass inspection. Praise God. Who knew, right? Who knew that would happen? We didn't, have, we didn't do hardly anything to it in a past inspection. Very exciting. Told a number of people about it this week. That's one end of my spectrum. The other end of my spectrum is that I'm in a season of life that's difficult and I'll pout and I'll complain about it. Have you been there with me? Sometimes those examples are more extreme. 
hopefully we have more to communicate than a silly van. But, but hear me on this. We need times to celebrate, right? It's okay to celebrate and, and enjoy and rejoice in silly van inspections because it shows the goodness of God in our lives. I really believe that. Those little nuggets that he gets, those are gifts from God. Enjoying our, our athletic teams, our accomplishments of our kids and all of that kind of stuff, those are gifts that we get from God. They reflect his goodness. And, and we need people to, um, in our lives to unpack those difficult times in our lives, those trying times in our lives where, where we need to be reminded of who we are in Christ. We need to be reminded of who the gospel, what the gospel is. And we do that with one another in community. But sin is so devious. Sin is so insidious, and we let it get its dirty, scummy, nasty grip on our lives, and, and that the good and the bad in our life, those circumstances in our lives, drive our emotions rather than the goodness of God. And guys, what we need to remember this morning is that sin is no small thing. It sways our emotions from one end of the, the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum. For some of us, we just have an outward ex, uh, experience of that more than others. But we all have it in here. It's that inner turmoil, that conflict that's ripping some of us apart this morning. It's literally tearing some of you apart this morning, that inner conflict. And all we want is peace. The seriousness of an insult rises with the dignity of the one insulted. The creator of the universe is infinitely worthy of respect and admiration and loyalty. Therefore, failure to love him is not trivial, it's treason. Again, John Piper. There is some of me in this sermon, by the way, trust me. But I think he, he paints pictures that are helpful for us. The seriousness of an insult rises with the dignity of the one insulted. The creator of the universe, infinitely worthy of respect and admiration and loyalty. Therefore, failure to love him is not a, a trivial thing. It's not a small thing. It's actually treasonous before God. It defames God and it destroys human happiness. Now, this is important for us. This last part, our relationship with God affects our relationship with not just God, primarily yes, but with ourselves and with other people. We'll come back to this at the end of our discussion, but we need to understand that since God is a just God, that he doesn't simply ignore our sin. That would be against his very character and his nature. He feels a justified, holy wrath against our sin that deserves punishment. Not to punish sin would be unjust of him. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6 says. But the absolute beauty of the gospel is that God wasn't satisfied for things to stay that way. He wasn't satisfied with the status quo, nor did he just simply want to start over. He chose as a loving God to redeem us and to make all things new. And Jesus came to do what the sacrificial system in the Old Testament could never do and was never intended to do. God put forth Jesus. God put forth Jesus. It was the will of the Father that the Son would be slain. Do you hear that? Do you hear that love? 
God put forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. I love the term divine forbearance. That's who God is. He's a divine forbearer. Forbearance simply means good-natured tolerance that delays enforcing rights or claims or privileges. God joyfully waits and delays. But friends, his wrath has an end, or his, his love has an end. And his wrath would come, and it came, and we read about it this morning. The removal of God's wrath by providing a substitute. That's what the word propitiation means. God chose to delay his wrath for a time. He rescued the people from bondage. He brought them into a land. He gave them laws to explain how they now would relate to God, this holy God. And when they rebelled against him, he sent prophets to call them back to repentance and to warn them of, of pending judgment But God's forbearance had an end. His justice would be satisfied. His wrath would be spent. It had to because he was a just God. And it was in the wrath that he displayed his love, which is crazy for us to think that way. It was in his wrath on the cross that he displayed his love. Enter Jesus Christ as our high priest. That high priest that would enter into the Holy of Holies time and time again, year after year after year. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent us His Son to be the wrath-absorbing propitiation for our sins. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood or goats or calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Jesus didn't just divert God's wrath. He didn't just cancel God's wrath. He actually moved it from us to him. God's wrath was spent on Jesus Christ. The full fourth force of God's wrath that we don't truly understand or comprehend was absorbed by Jesus on the cross. That's what's happening on the cross. Provides a little bit of insight into why Jesus would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The experience on the cross is something we will never truly fully understand. When this once and for all perfect and holy sacrifice occurred, the the curtain from top to bottom was torn in two that separated the holy place from the most holy place where only the high priest could go and had access to. That, That curtain was torn from top to bottom, signifying that we now have access to that holy God. Because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, the spotless lamb, rendered all other sacrifices worthless. God's justice is real and it's necessary, but God's love is also real and it's immense. It is immense. Some of us are offering sacrifices to God these days that will never satisfy him. They're worthless and it's something we do over and over and over again. 
We're offering up things to God that are impotent and insufficient to appease Him, and you're exhausted. Some of us are chasing after other gods. Some of us have elevated other things or people or relationships in our lives to other gods. Listen, Jesus has given you access. He's given you all the access that you need to a loving, forgiving God, the one true God. That's a love that we shouldn't trivialize. That's a love we shouldn't just slough off, that we shouldn't just not spend time deeply trying to ponder and understand. We must first see God, God's love in light of the cross because it puts all of the other experiences in our life, good and bad, into perspective. All of the good stuff, all of the bad stuff, all of the, the broken stuff in the world that we experience must be seen through the lens of this great conflict, the cross of Jesus Christ. What does it mean for us today? One thing it means is that God continues to tarry because Jesus is going to come back. Jesus will one day come back. And so the question for some of us is, do we understand the gravity of our sin before a holy God? Do we understand that God's love through Jesus is sufficient? Some of us need to just ponder that this morning. This reckless love of God that we sung about this morning, this pursuing God that if we're honest with ourselves and, and we really kind of tune into what's going on around us, I think maybe for the first time some of us can recognize God is working, God is moving, God is calling, God is drawing, God is beckoning, God is loving, God is convicting, and in some of that is because of there's discomfort in our life. There's pain in our life. There's something happening in our life that God is trying to get our attention. He's saying, I love you. He's saying, I sent my son to die for you. Reconciliation with God means we have peace. What a great word. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's a two-way peace. It's a peace with God. It's the most important peace that we could possibly have, but as we said, it's a peace within ourselves and a peace with others. The, re the relationship with God that He creates affects our relationship with ourselves and with other people because it gives us a brand new identity. What does it mean for our church today? Well, as we said, we all struggle in some way with conflict. And sometimes it's just change itself that we have problems with and that we don't respond well to. Often in my own life, as we said earlier, conflict and change causes the downward spiral and a blinding self-absorption. And this is when, when I have to be reminded of the love of Christ and who I am in Jesus Christ. And when all of life is viewed in light of the cross, I can actually see peace. I can actually understand peace. The wrath that was born on Jesus was intended for me, and I have peace with God, purchased by Jesus. That peace 
That blood on the cross has a visible reality to it. It looks like something. It means three things for us today, at least three things, but three particular things I want to end with today that speak directly to our identity, who we are in light of the cross, in light of the walls of hostility that have been torn down, in light of the veil that was ripped in two and torn down that gave access to God. Because of that, we have a new identity and we are, first and foremost, we're a family. First and foremost, we are a family. We are God's children who live as brothers and sisters. Second Corinthians says, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Hebrews says that both the one who makes people holy, Jesus, and those who are made holy, us, are in the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. So God is our father. Jesus is our brother. We are brothers and sisters. When we use the language of family around here, we do it because it's true. We do it because it's our identity. It's not a gimmick. It's who we are in Jesus. It's how he sees us. It's how God views us in light of Jesus Christ. Do we do this perfectly? No, we don't. Do we always feel that love from family? No, we don't. That's why we need to be reminded of it. That's why we come back to who we are in Christ and that we first and foremost are a family. If we begin to live from that identity as family and we treat one another as brothers and sisters, imagine the impact that would have both inside and outside the walls of our church to those that are looking in. Intrinsic to our identity as Christians is that we are a family. Number two, we're servants. We get to, not should, but we get to live as our King and Savior lived. Philippians says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of what? A servant. Being born in the likeness of men. Mark 10 says, Even the Son of Man came, not to serve, but to what? To serve. The love of Christ compels us to action, 2 Corinthians says, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might, what? No longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, the implications are humongous when we think about this. When we see our identity as servants like Jesus, we suddenly look for ways not just to serve those among our brothers and sisters in our church, but ways to serve friends and neighbors and co-workers to be the aroma of Christ. Intrinsic to our identity as Christians is that we are servants. And the third thing, we're filled, empowered, and sent by Jesus' own Spirit. Jesus said, before he, arose, before he ascended, he said to his apostles, he said, peace, there's that word again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then when he said it, he breathed the Holy Spirit on them. Brothers and sisters, you have that same spirit. I know it's hard for us to believe. And it's hard for us to, to understand. And sometimes we don't feel it. 
But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you have the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. And He is ascending God. The Spirit is our helper. Intrinsic to our identity as Christians is that we are missionaries. And this means that we take serious the command to make disciples. And so we open our hearts to being equipped to be disciple makers. Jesus died as the final sufficient sacrifice to appease the holy wrath of God. And in doing that, he made peace and access a reality in your life between us and between God. And the resulting peace gave us a new identity in Jesus where we are a family of missionary servants in a lost and broken world that needs to see something different than what they see. What are they seeing in you? What are they seeing in you? We don't do any of this when we reach a level of perfection in this life. Our goal isn't to communicate to somebody that being a Christian is perfect, that we have to have all of our stuff together. People need to see us limp. People need to see authenticity, which means they're going to see us fail, which means they're going to see us mess up. They're going to see us say and hear and hear and see us do and say things that hurt them. But the grace of God displayed on the cross compels us to love, to forgiveness, and to reconciliation because we have been reconciled to God by the blood of his cross. I'm going to close out by reading the last few verses of the section in Hebrews that Allie read this morning, she read up until verse 18, where it describes that Jesus is our high priest and he sits down at the right hand of God. Because of that, because of Jesus' sacrifice, the writer of Hebrews then says, therefore, therefore, brothers and sisters, this is what this looks like. Since we Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we have access now by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And he ends this way. Let us consider how to stir one another up in love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The days are coming to a close. Jesus will return one day. How are we going to respond to what he has done in our lives while we are in this vapor of a time where we get to be an example, the embodiment of Jesus himself, his hands, his feet, his smell? What is our response to that? Let's pray. Father, the the reality is unfathomable. We, we come in here this morning and, and we're, we're carrying weight 
and it's difficult for us to hear. It's, it's difficult for us to speak. It's difficult to process. It's difficult for me to, to, to accurately describe what was stirred up in my heart this week, Father. But your Spirit, Lord, we want your Spirit to do the work. God, would your spirit do the work in our heart this morning? Draw us to yourself. Give us a new reality, a new understanding of what happened on the cross. God, we love you. We thank you for the peace that was purchased by Jesus on the cross. May we walk in this peace, loving you with all of ourselves because Jesus died for all of us. Every piece of us, he died. Let us live as if we are loved and cared for. And when we are wounded, and we will be wounded, Lord, let us run back into the arms of our Savior to be loved and nurtured, to go back out on the field, to serve you, to love others, to exalt Christ. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.